Our text this morning is from Luke 12, 13 through 21. You'll find this passage on page 71 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there will I store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of God, of the Lord. Thanks, Becky. Well, good morning. David's still in the lead. What are you doing? Okay, no, that's right. I thought for sure I would get in the lead, but you guys failed me, so that's okay. Uh, we are on week two of our four-week series on generosity, and I know what you're thinking if you're a guest. Of course, of course I visited this day uh, when the pastor's talking about generosity, but listen, I'll say the same thing we, uh, I said last week before starting the sermon. Um, there's something that talking about goods and money does to us. Uh, it, it, uh, maybe the Gollum effect, if you will, that might be too harsh, but um, we love stuff. We love money. And so when that topic comes up, we have uh, an emotional reaction. And so what I encouraged us to do last week, I'll encourage us again this week and probably the next two, is don't start mad. Allow the scripture to make you mad, okay? And then in that, in that anger or whatever that strong emotion is, go to the Lord with it. Go to the Lord with it. Those moments where we are either angry or upset about something we've read in scripture, um, those are the moments when sometimes the gospel can speak to us the loudest. And so um, our goal here at Grace is always just to teach what's there, not to add anything extra. Uh, and so uh, that is my encouragement for us this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this parable as taught by Jesus in Luke 12. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in a church uh, that not only cares about the good news of the gospel, but we understand the value of the good news is dependent upon uh, the honesty of the bad news, that we are sinners and so we don't look at that as something that is offensive. We look at that as your grace, your goodness to show us where we fall short. We all do. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we go into this parable, we'd hear the corrective teaching. Jesus is correcting a thought. We'd hear it. We would have the clarity and the courage by the power of the Holy Spirit to see where that correction needs to take place in our hearts and that, Lord, we would have the motivation, the love, the sight to follow you in that thing. We love you. We proudly sing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, when we interpret scripture, um, generally what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, use context, use original languages, use all these things to, to sift out the original meaning 
Sift out the original. What was the author or the speaker trying to say to that audience back when it was originally spoken or written? And then we take that nugget of truth and we bring it into our lives. Now, sometimes that process can be more complicated than others. Today, thankfully, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we have a parable, a teaching of Jesus that we can glean the meaning from and directly plug that meaning into our lives. So that's what we're going to uh, uh, adventure into today. Um, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus tells a cautionary tale, and he raises an alarm. He wants us to be uh, listening as if it's urgent. And he wants for us to ask a couple of different questions of ourselves, specifically about material goods. That's what Jesus is trying to do. Now, uh, the context here, if you look at the beginning of Luke 12, you'll see that he is being followed by about a, a several thousand people who want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so in, in this particular moment, uh, there is a man who has the courage from this crowd of thousands of people to yell out a question. He has a problem that he wants Jesus to help him solve. And so look at verse 13. Someone in the crowd, this massive crowd of thousands of people, yells out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, before we uh, get all upset with this person, uh, this is actually a, not an unusual thing for a teacher or a rabbi to do in Jewish culture. Uh, if think about, back to Moses. What is Mo, one of Moses' main jobs is to sit as judge between Israelites and judge what is right and what is wrong, who is right and who is wrong. Even King Solomon, there's the famous story of the two mothers claiming one baby. The king would sit and hear disputes and rule on them, judge on them. So he, the man's not out of line. This is actually a pretty reasonable request. What he's actually saying here is, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. It's important to understand that in this particular society, as it is with many patriarchal societies around the world and in history, uh, Israelites practiced what's called lion's share inheritance, meaning the oldest son received two-thirds of all of the father's goods, and the rest of the children split the other third. And so what we have here is likely a younger brother who believes his brother is defrauding him in that division. He, believed, he might have actually been defrauded, okay? We don't really get into all that. But Jesus, as we talked about last week, Jesus is not as concerned with money. He's not an arbiter of money. He is an arbiter of the heart. And so what does he say here? Man, that's not like man, that's man, okay? Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So much like Jesus does, he takes a bit of a left turn to answer the question. He's not answering the, the, the main question or the surfacing question or the presenting question. He's answering the actual question. He's getting to the, the real point of the matter. And so Jesus gives this warning. He gives, uses some dire language. He first says, take care. This means to watch carefully. This might be the same thing you would uh, act out if you were walking through a minefield. It's that level of caution. Take care where you're stepping. Be on your guard. It means, this means to restrain yourself or guard yourself. The same kind of language you'd use to put someone on the tower of your city to watch out for enemies coming at night. These are urgent words. 
The same kind of language you'd use with a loved one who's about to make a certain decision that you can foresee the destruction in it. You would use these take care, be on your guard type words. And so the same sense here, Jesus is urgently, he's pressing all that can can hear him to be on guard against something very specific. Be on guard. Be careful with this thing. And that thing is covetousness. Now, this is not a word we use every day, okay? So let's define it. What's covetousness? It's almost synonymous with greediness. Another word that would be uh, better than greediness would be insatiableness. Never being satisfied, wanting more than is needed is the general idea. A couple quotes to help you fill out the picture from my studies this week. One author said, it is a lust for more and more that is never satisfied and accumulating wealth becomes the focus of the person's whole life. We live in the West. We see this all the time. Another quote, it's a desire to get more. I like this one, adds a little bit of texture. It's a desire to get more without reference to one's needs or the situation of others. And so really, the focus isn't what do others need, what do I really need, it's just about the word more. As we call it in our house, more monsters. You get two cookies from dad, and what's the first question? Can I have another cookie? Okay, that's how it works. That's covetousness, deacons in nursery this morning. So, um, I'll have him listen back. Deacon, do you get that one? All right, take notes. Now, there's a reason. Now I have to buy him ice cream because he used his name. What's going on? Ah, okay. Um, the reason that God gives, or Jesus gives, is this. Life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. This is not just... Don't covet for no reason. Jesus is making a concerned call against this idea of wanting more and more, being insatiable, because there is no life in that pursuit. So the dire command, beware, everybody listening, of our tendency to want more than we need. That's the command. Be aware of it. The reason is we do not gain life from more stuff. Jesus is saying that real life, real security, real value, real comfort, these things are not determined by possessions, amount of possessions. Now, Jesus elaborates by telling a parable. It's important to know that a parable is not an allegory, so not every little detail has something that equals. A parable has one or maybe two specific meanings. So let's look at this story that Jesus tells to make his point. Verses 16 and 17, he says this, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So up to this point, no error has taken place in the story. There's no errors. So in other words, Jesus, the story is not about how owning a business is evil. It's not a problem in the story. It's not even about being rich. Rich isn't a problem in this story. Think about last week. We talked about how much fish those disciples caught, and it was enough to sustain all of their families for 25 years. In that moment, they became what? Independently wealthy. So that's not the problem. Being productive isn't a problem. Thinking about what you should do with your stuff isn't a problem. The error occurs in verse 18. It's the answer to the question that he makes an error. And he said, I will do this. He makes a determination. I will tear down my barns 
and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Let's understand what's going on. He had barns already. It, the barns he had weren't enough to, uh, to, to take in the entire harvest of this crop. And so the barns, in, in a sense, are full already. The rest is excess. He thinks about what he wants to do, but really, what does he do? He chooses an action. He doesn't think about God. One of the authors I was reading this, this week said it is actually stark. It's, 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 a, it's a startling fact that he doesn't pray about this or, or even look to the scriptures. Instead, he thinks to himself, what will I do? He chooses just to store it away for something that might happen later so that he can be comfortable and not worry. He stores up with no intentionality, just in case. If you're wondering what he might have looked to in the scriptures, Leviticus 19 is related to this idea. It says in Leviticus 19, as Moses is giving the law about what to do with crops, that no one should ever harvest everything. In fact, leave the edges, it says, so that the poor and the sojourner may collect so the concept is there. If there's more than you need, if there's even more, than you, uh, more, uh, more of your crops than you can harvest, you should just leave it, leave it for others. But this man does not leave it for others. He stores it away. He locks it away to use himself just in case. Verse 19 reveals his thought process. Well, first we should mention that this is, the rich man has committed covetousness. We see this, right? He had enough, and what did he do? He took more. He looked at his full barns. He was unsatisfied. He was insatiable. He knocked them down, built bigger ones, and filled those. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, it's very interesting that he talks to his soul in this moment, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds nice. That sounds nice. What a wise guy with his finances. What is it, what's wrong with this picture? He is trying to satisfy his soul. Literally, the word here is psyche. His soul, something that's eternal with temporary things. He's trying to satisfy that which lasts forever which some, with something that cannot last forever. This is a sin. This is the sin of covetousness. He held onto his wealth like he would have it for a long time. He looked to his possessions for safety and security. Jesus allows us to peek behind the curtain and see what God thinks about this choice. So verse 20, God said to him, fool, that's not a good word, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So as we just mentioned, the rich, rich man thought he could satisfy, thought he could nourish, thought he could uh, secure his soul with stuff. But since God governs life, since God governs death, since God governs eternity, filling that which goes on for eternity with that which is temporary is foolishness. Foolishness. Strong language, it means senselessness. We could probably think of several other words that are more common in our language. That means having no sense. And then lastly, we come to the verdict. So the one who lays up treasure for himself 
temporary treasure, is not, uh, so it is, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is the, is the one? It is foolishness, is a fool. Jesus is saying it's a waste of life. It's a waste of our life to fill it with more than enough. It's a waste. And Jesus, in the same sentence, says it is eternally, an eternally better investment to invest in God. Jesus is lovingly warning us, don't waste your life like that with an obsession with stuff. Think about the alternative investment to live rich toward God. Now, what is Jesus not doing here? Jesus is not laying out a spreadsheet <laughs> of this is how much money you should make. This is how much money you need to survive. This is all the details of what a budget looks like. He's not even prescribing in this passage a certain way to use your money. What he wants to do is bring some questions to our minds. And these questions, praise the Lord, have the ability to free us from the rat race. More, 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 more. And these are the two questions Jesus wants us to ask ourselves in this parable. First, how much is enough? Secondly, when enough is enough, what do we do with the extra? These are the two questions. So let's jump into these. The question, how much is enough, is a question aimed towards contentment and satisfaction. This question, how much is enough, causes us, church, to divide our things divide categories between needs and wants. What is it that we need? What meets our needs? Now, next week, we'll dive a little deeper into the topic of living simply. But this week, it's all about just asking the question, what is enough? And here's the deal. The, the premise is that there is such thing as enough. <laughs> that hurts. There's a limit it's definable to how much stuff, how much money is enough. That's the presumption. Now, I wrote down, most of us will have, but I think it's, I, I want to say all. I know that not all of us are in the same situation, but living in the West, I, I, I'm going to say most, but understand that we're pretty close to all on this one. Most of us will have to draw a line somewhere behind us in the past tense on where we passed enough. All of us. Most of us. We reached enough some time ago. Why is it that most of us, if not all of us, have this issue? The issue is we live in a culture. We ourselves desire comfort we want that most of all, and this desire for comfort becomes this flesh, fleshly intoxication that makes us senseless. That's what it is. And I believe, probably because of the culture we live in, that we have copiously mislabeled needs and wants. And so what do we have? I made this list and many of these things, I was like, well, don't say that, but I, I have to. It leaves us with excess in money, excess in hobbies, excess in food, excess in entertainment, excess in housing, excess in transportation, excess in toys for our children. 
We could go on and on and on. The passage, Jesus' story, Jesus' loving yet dire warning is calling us to ask the question and be willing to let the answers be hard. They're not going to be easy. Jesus is calling us to be on watch when it comes to the drug of financial security. That's what he's trying to do first. Second, if we can get to this place, when enough is enough, Jesus wants us to ask, what do we do with the extra? The the rich man asked that question, what do I do with the extra? And he just said, well, I'm just going to store it away because enough isn't enough. That's where I want to get into this idea of what it means to be rich toward God. A good summary definition would be using the resources we have in this fleeting life to build a kingdom that lasts for eternity. That's what it means to be rich toward God. This doesn't mean all all this health, wealth stuff where if we do the right thing, God will bless us financially in return. That's not what this is. This means using what God has generously given us here in this place, all the excess, to move the gospel forward and secure the kingdom of God here on earth. That's what it means to be rich toward God, investing in things for eternity rather than in the temporary. Just some practical things. What are the things that do this? Missionaries, ministries, local and global. The needy. Next week, Jesus specifically, he turns to his disciples right after telling this, and he gives them a specific teaching on what to do with their possessions. And the needy come up and actually throw all of Scripture, even in Leviticus 19. The Scriptures often talk about helping the needy, helping the sojourner. The moment you've all been waiting for, (laughs) the church is plan A for moving the gospel forward. Now, here's what I want to say. If any of that, if any of that sparks your excitement and you want to give to the kingdom and watch it move with your excess, let that passion, let that belief lead you on the journey, journey of discovering what to do with your extra. I love 2 Corinthians 9, 7 on this topic. Here's what Paul has to say. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's the aim here. It's really quiet here today. Um, What do we do with all this information? What do we do with it? I think, first of all, To think that we can untangle the mess of our covetousness in a short amount of time, that's unrealistic to think. That's unrealistic to think. And so what, do we, what are some first steps? First, I think it is good for us to determine, determine as Christians to live awake to our tendencies and to live awake to God's will. Just a few verses later in Luke 12, here's something that Jesus says. After all this money talk with his disciples, he says this to them. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Here's what material possessions do. They lull us into a state of kingdom activity. We can lounge So first, determine to live awake. Ask the question, when is enough enough? 
And when enough is enough, what do I do with the extra as we move through life? The next question would be, what is the better way to live rich toward God? This means to use what we have to advance the kingdom and serve others rather than try and pad our overgrown lifestyles to avoid pain. Here's the next piece of information, next thing we should understand as we move forward in this. God is extremely generous with us. In fact, God enjoys being generous with what he has. One author I was reading recently said, you cannot fit what God has given you in the offering plate. (laughs) And so here's what we have to understand. We ought to ask God to guide us on this journey of generosity. God, what what, what is enough? God, don't make the mistake of the rich man. He did not ask God. He asked himself, God, what is enough? Help me define those boundaries. When enough is enough, what do I do with the extra? And when we ask God to do this, understand, God wants to. He loves to guide us on this journey of generosity. And the Spirit delights in that effort. It's going to be an exciting time. For your walk, as the Spirit helps us untangle from our love affair with stuff. I think Paul sums up this topic well. He wrote a letter to his disciple Timothy, who was a pastor. And the first and second Timothy are books that are written as instruction to pastors. And he says this in 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, which means arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, church, what is truly life? What is truly life is the gospel. The gospel, as we summarize it, maybe some of you have never heard this before. Here's the gospel. We are much more sinful than we know. That's the bad news. How bad we think we are, we're actually much worse. But that releases us into some other thing, and that is that we are loved by God even more than we can imagine. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's true life, is seeking out our sinfulness, knowing that God's love is never exhausted for us in Jesus Christ. That's true life. That's where joy and security and all these things we're talking about actually comes from. And so as we take the gospel and we apply it to this topic, this is true of our money and our stuff as well. And so what is the the gospel in our lives as it pertains to material goods? We are much more greedy than we know. We're much more greedy than we know. Most of us are in here thinking, well, I'm not too greedy. We're, We're worse. Or worse. But here's the gospel piece. Here's the valuable piece. God has been more generous to us than we could ever imagine when it comes to eternal blessings. It says in Ephesians, he's lavished on us the eternal blessings in Jesus Christ. And so this gospel truth, this is the only way that I know that we can have courage to walk trustfully with Christ when it comes to material goods. So Jesus, this morning, by debunking our belief that stuff fills us, secures us, saves us, satisfies us, 
He has given us a great gift in return. The great gift of the freedom from our foolishness. God in Jesus Christ has given us true security, true salvation, true value, true comfort in the cross and his victory over death. And so as we walk through this life, we actually, we're free, church. We don't need to attempt to fill any of our needs or wants or any of those voids with, with more than is enough. We're free to be rich toward God. I love that this teaching in the Gospel of Luke is in a context, a literal context, that also illustrates the truth of this matter. Jesus Christ set aside divine riches to come and live as a human, to come and give himself even unto death, death on a cross, for what purpose? It says in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I'm not talking about physical wealth, we're talking about spiritual riches. Jesus gave up eternity to give us eternity. Jesus did this thing so that we might be free from the foolish and meaningless things that take hold of our hearts. They're invaluable. Sorry, they're to take hold of invaluable eternal things. So this morning as we approach the table, the Lord's Supper, that's what this is. Taking the Lord's Supper, eating the bread, drinking the wine or the juice is receiving God's generosity. It's receiving God's generosity. And so this morning, if you know for a fact that if you're left to your own devices, that you are, like me, a greedy sinner. That's who we are. That's what we are. And knowing that that is true, even knowing that that is true, seeing the generosity of Jesus Christ coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying an unjust death in our place, rising from the dead to give us victory, to give us access to God. If you know that that gift of salvation comes only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've confessed this, you've professed this, you've been baptized, this meal, the celebration of God's generosity is for you. You're not actually receiving the generosity, it's already yours. This is a recognition of that. So if those things are true of you, Know your value. Know that you are secure in your salvation. Know that you are secure in your satisfaction and come and eat at the Lord's table. Now, if you have not received God's gift of forgiveness, you don't want it or you feel like you don't need it, or unapologetically you're in a place where it's like, nah, I just want stuff. I don't really care about this Jesus thing. It, it makes no sense no sense to come and eat the bread and drink the wine. There's actually no reputation in it for you. By coming forward, you're admitting you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself. And so the scriptures say, if, if these things are true, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ or trust him for salvation, or if you are set in your sin and, and are not interested in moving from it, the Bible says, do not eat. And we would ask that you would recognize that warning, that command as well this morning. 
Let's take a moment just to pray quietly. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing and then we'll give instructions to distribute the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, praying in the way that the Puritans prayed, I ask the same things, that if we should suffer need, should we go unclothed, should we be in poverty, make the prize of our heart your love. May we see the affliction that this rat race, as we call it, of wanting more, insatiableness. May we see how it afflicts us and may we be separated from it, but not only that, may we desire separation from it, they prayed. We ask for satisfaction with the truth, the truth that we are dying and condemned and in Christ we live and are reconciled, the truth that we are insufficient and we are exhausted, but in Christ we are satisfied and we have peace. The truth that we are feeble, unable to do good, but in Christ, by the strength of his spirit, we can do all things. I pray that the supper will be blessed in this way, that it would be a nourishment, an empowerment, a call, an encouragement. I pray that we would eat of your generosity this morning we would be motivated, that we would be brought by the Spirit to untangle ourselves from that which we cannot keep, that which does not satisfy. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.